If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? Podcast time. Hope all is well. Probably like myself, you're glued to the TV or Twitter or Facebook or wherever you're watching ongoing events in Ukraine, in Russia. John? It's tragic. It is tragic. That's really, really tragic. Yeah, no, it is. And 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 quite upsetting. I think we've we've talked about it on previous podcasts, but last week you spoke about the possible economic effects of an invasion. And this is yeah. before the invasion. And now, of course, all the stuff has happened in the meantime. So we've seen, we're now seeing gold going up and oil going up and... Yeah, and stock markets going down. Yeah, and all people, that kind of stuff. So people worried about recessions and everything. Give us give us an assessment, your thoughts yeah. on on kind of the economics of all of this. Well, I suppose it's kind of something that's a bit distasteful talking about economics uh, at a time mm, of yeah, war. Yeah, it is. But actually, for, for what, what war changes the world and capital moves when wars are announced and speculation starts, long-term trends are changing, people's perceptions of growth, about the economy, about recessions, they all change. So you've got to deal with the economic consequences. And, of course, the West has decided that its main weapon is economics. Yeah. Right? Because we're not fighting this. So we're not fighting on the ground. Yeah. So our main idea is that we will use economics and various sanctions against Russia to teach Russia that there are consequences or teach Putin that there are consequences. Already Putin and Lavrov themselves, all their assets have been targeted, right, by the West. And I think this is going to be a rolling period of tighter and tighter economic sanctions against Russia, right? So that's what I think, that's that's where we're going to, going to go in. But, you know, Putin also knew that this is going to happen, there'd be going to be sanctions and stuff. So he probably hedged He's bet maybe he's yeah. bought up all the Bitcoin. I don't well, know. I mean, well, that's the funniest thing is the crypto people were out saying, this is good for Bitcoin. Everything is good for Bitcoin, apparently, John, right? Yeah. That's the thing. <laughs> but if you think about it, right, well, let's just break it down. Yeah. The first major impact is going to be on prices and inflation. One, Russia is dismissed as a large petrol station by many American commentators. And that's what it is, right? Yeah. Okay, but it's a large petrol station with a very productive wheat farm stuck onto it. Okay, right. now Russia and an ice cream shop and an ice cream shop and all the rest. <laughs> but Russia is the biggest exporter of wheat in the world, and wheat is the foundational cereal 
of the vast majority of the West. Yeah. So let's not be dismissive of that, okay? And the Russian wheat production has been phenomenal in terms of its expansion over the last 20 years, okay? Right. So it went from a country that couldn't feed itself, that imported wheat, to being a country... From Ukraine. From Ukraine and from all over the world. In actual yeah. fact, do you remember Gary Steingart? The, uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant novelist. Right, he's a I don't Russian, know. I don't. He's a Russian novelist who was at Dorky a couple of years ago, and he's coming back this year. Oh, brilliant. He's brilliant, okay. right? And uh, I asked him, I was interviewing him, and I asked him, I said, Gary, well, you know, tell me your story. So you're Russian. Like, how did you end up in the States? And he says, uh, I was traded. And I said, how do you mean you were traded? Yeah, I was traded for a croissant. <laughs> I said, what? He said, in 1978, Russia had a complete harvest failure in wheat. Okay. And the Russians went to the Americans to import wheat, to buy wheat from the Americans. Yeah. And the Americans said, we can only, we're only going to give you this wheat if you let out X amount of Jewish people who wanted to leave, right? And so Gary said, I was one of those Jews. <laughs> he said, so I was traded for like a baguette <laughs> or a croissant. <laughs> so over the years, Russia has always had this very strange relationship and if you if you read the history of Odessa, a book I, I think I recommended a couple of months ago, it's all about the impact of the wheat industry in Ukraine and yeah. Russia yeah. on the Black Sea. Fascinating stuff. So anyway, Russia, biggest exporter of wheat in the world. If you sanction that, wheat prices go up. And yeah. wheat prices are the foundational price, as I said. And don't forget that most people think the single biggest trigger for the Arab Spring was not some yearning for democracy, but was incredibly high bread prices. Okay. Was food prices went yeah. up dramatically yeah. because of a wheat shortage. Yeah. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, of course, is the oil and gas. And both of those prices will go up as we squeeze Russia. That's the first thing. Yeah. Okay. And then the second area is what type of sanctions will we impose? So the first type of sanction are what they call the Mijinsky sanctions. And Majinsky was a murdered lawyer who worked very closely with a guy called Bill Browder, who wrote a fantastic book about corruption under Putin. Okay. okay. He was an American investor that Putin turned on and took all his goodies away. But the guy Majinsky was a lawyer, a Russian lawyer, who unveiled this web of links between Putin and all the oligarchs and where the money was going, what they were robbing, what they were not robbing, etc. Mijinsky gets murdered in Russia right, yeah. by Putin's people. So the Mijinsky sanctions are specifically targeting those people around Putin. So the idea would be treat Putin like Tony Soprano, <laughs> like, like right. a mafia boss. Yeah, so yeah. what do you do is you go after the henchmen. You go after the boss, you go after his money, you make it Almost, it's like tailing somebody. You make it impossible for his henchmen to travel. These are what I would call the Mayfair Russians, right? You know, in 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 London. Oh yeah, they yeah, own yeah. Mayfair, they own Kensington, all these places, and, right? and, and they're really super flash, super flash, and they want to be seen in the Caprice yeah. restaurant. And they want to be in their Lamborghinis and zooming around South Ken, right? Yeah. So the first type of sanctions is you target those people, and you make their life impossible, and you impound their super yachts. And you go down to Monaco and you impound this, that, and the other, right? So you go after them. Yeah. The second form of sanctions are just your normal trade sanctions, right? Which is oil and gas in the main. And again, you have to look, we'll go through the numbers in a second, but they are the areas. Now, there's 
has been in the last couple of days a tightening, a unity amongst Europeans. In the beginning, the Germans were very, very worried about cutting off gas. Mm. Okay, as were the Italians were trying to negotiate. Do you know this? Draghi was trying to negotiate a, which just looked really pathetic, an opt-out for Italian luxury clothes and designer kit from the sanctions. Because oh, the Russians buy all that shit. Yeah. Okay. Jesus. But that's the, the second phase. And the third phase is this idea of SWIFT, right? Mm. And I've been writing that without SWIFT, there's no point. SWIFT is a... It's like, actually, Martin spoke about it last the other day. It's, it's basically like an email service for banks, okay? So it allows 11,000 banks to trade and clear trades together. If you take right. the Russians out of that, suddenly you cut off the Russians, Russia, from the Western finance system. Yeah. And that will strangle them very, very quickly. But then you've got to think to yourself, well, hold on a second, back to your question, which is, Putin knew this was going to happen. So what have they done? How vulnerable is Russia yeah. to these things? And if you look at the numbers, the key thing is twofold. One is how much of the Russians prepared for this, like the Russian Central Bank, yeah. building up reserves, not being exposed to foreign exchange, etc. Right? How much money do they have? Yeah. The second thing is what does China do? Because the Americans and the Europeans can't close off the world anymore, right? Yeah. Because... If China decides that it will buy the oil that we don't buy from Russia, then you can probably net it out that nothing will happen to them. And if China says, that, well, you know, we'll lend you money. And if China says, well, we'll supply you with consumer goods, then in effect, Russia can just do a deal with China, which it probably already has done, because we know that China would probably quite like a green light for Taiwan at some stage in the future. Yeah. And it's kind of in the way in which it's not sort of let us do this. It's like we now have a favor that we can call in from you yeah. at some stage in the yeah. future, right? And on the UN Security Council, it's China, Russia, Britain, France, and America. Yeah. So if China and Russia are sewn up. But it's interesting, actually, just on that, that China abstained from condemning the of invasion. Did, yeah. So it's, it's building well, up. Well, see, the, the Russia, well, there was talk that Russia expected them to, to support them. To support them. I know you can't you can't support an opening invasion of a country. Yeah. But you can you can indicate your support by abstaining. Yeah. You know, you can say, well, we're well, not. Well, it could be taken either way. Yeah. See, see, that's that kind of diplomacy that I don't really understand. It's like a different language. Almost. It is like a different language. It is like a different language. But if we look at what the Russians do, right? So Russians overall exports are four hundred billion dollars okay. a year. Yeah. 50%, or about 51%, are petrol or petrol-related, okay? So that's a huge, huge chunk. If the Chinese decide to buy that stuff off the Russians, because China is always dependent on outside energy, mm. then the Russians can simply repackage their oil onto different containers and different ships and basically put it yeah. somewhere else, give it to the Chinese. Where that will ultimately, where that will lead to is like a completely divided world this is this is then this is our point from last week or from from yesterday that we're going to have to make a change we've been living in this sort of dream world where oh we can deal with the oligarchs and we can deal yeah. with the autocracies and you know we can deal with these these non-democratic countries that don't really have the same values as us no yeah this is the this is a massive cleavage in global affairs that nobody think we're going back to where we were 
we'll never go back to where we were. Yeah. And this this is basically it's going to be America and Europe against Russia and China. Yeah. That's it. And, and leaves the likes of Australia and Japan kind of... Well, Japan are very much with us. Yes. Very, very much No, but it us. kind of leaves them in geographically. Geographically, they're very exposed. They're very exposed. They're very, very exposed. And it's, you know, it's it's the end of sort of soft Pax America. And now the Americans are going to have to step up and get completely involved in the world in a way in which they didn't want to for yeah. a long, long time. But if we come back to the, the idea, Russia's gas exports are 55 billion a year. And they're much more difficult for the Russians to reorientate because they go through pipes. Yeah. So most, the vast majority of oil is put on tankers and shipped, right? Whereas they go through pipes and the Russians will not be able to re-divert that. So they will suffer that. Yeah. But then the other big question is, what happens to the world economy? If you're going to have higher levels of inflation at a time when we're already in a period of inflation, mm. but the central banks will not feel, of Europe or America, will not feel, because we're at war, we're in a war situation, will not feel that they're able to raise interest rates, right? We're in a situation where we could clearly have stagflation in the world. Now, stagflation is what happened. It would be a disaster, happened. wouldn't it? Well, it's what happened in the 1970s. So you get this combination of inflation and a recession at the same time, right? Yeah. And it's usually driven by these energy prices, as it was in 1973. That could be... The case, what will happen in that case is the central banks will not increase interest rates. So we can we can we can do all these things. I mean, we can strangle the Russian economy, yeah. right? And we can go after the oligarchs and we can target their goodies. There's no doubt of all this. And we can, at a stretch, remove them completely from the system, which would mean the ruble would collapse because they need foreign exchange to prop it up. Yeah. And eventually, their foreign exchange resources, in terms of the reserves, will run out, right? But that's a long, long game, yeah. right? And you're also thinking that Putin is not somebody who really cares about money. If you know what I mean? He cares about power, real, yeah. real yeah, power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't care about the Russians having privation, the average Russian having, you know, not being able to do this, that, and the other, not being able to travel. He doesn't care about that, right? So maybe his long-term thinking is that the invasion would precipitate a recession or stagflation in the West, and that we will then become emasculated by not having the economic power, that we will have a recession. And he would say that if he can push prices up of food and of petrol or energy, so mm. think about the two basic foundational yeah, yeah. issues, energy and food. If he can push those up, he drives the West into stagflation, and he understands the West is very indebted. So you get a recession and lots of debt. So you get lots of bankruptcies at a time when the central banks will not move against inflation because the presidents and the politicians, it looks really bad for right. central banks to be raising interest rates at a time of war. Yeah. So that is the long game that he's playing. And the long game that we're playing has to be that we strangle the Russian economy before our economies begin to creak. That is, in a sense, right. what's going on. And then you've got to look at the other side of money. God, I mean, that's that's the ultimate Russian roulette, isn't it? Yeah. Or game of chicken, who blinks first? Well, exactly, except the good thing is this, the chicken's moving very, very slowly. <laughs> the game of chicken it moves very quickly. <laughs> but but that's the idea of being in the long, long term. But within that cycle, 
there's going to be all sorts of speculative cycles because capital moves very, very quickly. And this is something I've always been fascinated about is that history gives us some amazing examples of what happens in war times where fortunes are made and lost. Yeah. And this goes all the way back, ironically, to the Roman Empire. John, I'm taking you back to the Forum. Excellent. Excellent. Back to the Here we Forum. Go. People don't appreciate that money, what really distinguished the Romans from previous empires prior to them was their profound understanding of credit and money. Rome was the very first shareholder democracy. It was only democracy for its own citizens, which yeah. were only like about 20,000 people at a certain stage, really rich people, right? But it was a shareholder democracy in the sense that the Romans, when they conquered the world, mm. they conquered it for capitalism. So basically what the Romans did, the army went out, yeah. which was always privately funded, right? The army the, was. The Roman was. army was privately funded, okay? And then if they won in the battlefield, right, if they took over Palestine yeah. or if they took over Lebanon. You get all the spoils. Basically then, the, reason, the way you got paid back as yeah. an investor in the army is you were given the license to give out. And the license was always the license around tax collecting. Right. right? So how you made your it's money back. It's a franchise business. Yeah. It was like McDonald's. Yeah. Right. For people with shields and funny hats. Yeah. Okay? I actually saw that movie just during the week, actually, The Founder. Have you seen that? No. What is it? It's, it's, it is that story. It's a story of how McDonald's, the two McDonald's brothers, brothers. who started off and really nice guys, got a great business going, but it was Koch or whatever his Koch name was. was the guy who used to fly over bits of the States. Yeah. And he came in and said, what you need, guys, he loved the business. And he said, what you need, guys, is you need to turn this into a franchise. And that's what he did. So take uh, take that model in your head, yeah, yeah. All right? And think you're in Gladiator, okay? <laughs> this is what the Romans did, okay? Right. And, of course, the Romans set up publicly traded companies. And those companies were called Societas Publicanum. So public societies, right? right. And they were traded, right? And, of course, the news flow was crucially important about whether they were winning the war or losing the war. So you know the price of gold is going up or the price of Bitcoin, oil, it's all, it's mm, all on mm. news flow. Yeah, so yeah, once you yeah. get into a war, nobody worries about the growth rate and GDP and long-term. It's like, what is the news? Who's winning? Who's losing? Now, imagine that was in Rome, right? So in the forum was full of these people and be full of rumors and gossips and saying, we got our arses kicked in Carthage. You won't be able to go and collect taxes. Then you won't get it paid back. And these prices all yeah. fluctuated. And that sort of stuff, that's the first stock market. And the, of course, the people who invested in stocks in Rome were called publicanis, right? right, right. Just the, the, the investing publicans, <laughs> not in our sense of publicans, right? So, I mean, for thousands of years, wars have had speculative implications, right? Maybe the best one is the Battle of Waterloo, John. Go on. Battle of Waterloo, the Duke of Wellington, yep. born in Merrion Square. Right, yes. The man is. who said, just because you're born in the stable doesn't make you a horse. When he was called, they, when they said, are you Irish? <laughs> what an you know arsehole. That? Well, complete <laughs> arsehole, right? So the Duke of Wellington, right, wins the Battle of Waterloo. But it was quite unexpected. People expected Napoleon. Napoleon was in house arrest, okay, yeah. in the island of Elba. Yeah. Right? A hundred days after he skipped the island of Elba. With, right? by the way, another Irish connection, um, and I can't think of his name, but his physician. Well, the guy from, from Newtown Park Avenue. From Newtown Park Avenue. <laughs> That's a great story. Napoleon's physician was from Newtown Park Avenue, which is about 
300 yards from where we're sitting. Yeah. And we're going to find out this guy, right? <laughs> so Napoleon, 100 days after he gets out of Elba, he's scrapping in Waterloo, right? Yeah. Okay, he's rebuilt the army, yada, yada, yada. Okay, but most of the world at the time thought that he was going to win, right? And it wasn't a foregone conclusion. And Nathan Rothschild of the great Rothschild family, yeah. who had started as goldsmiths in Frankfurt, right? Within a generation, mm. had become this extraordinary financial institution, the Rothschild Frères, the brothers, right? And the Rothschilds had thought in London that Napoleon was going to win. So they bought up loads and loads of gold, right, as a safe haven. And they sold what were called consuls, which were British government debt, right? Bonds, basically. Bonds. They yeah. sold bonds. Yeah. Because if the Brits had lost the war, they would have had to repay all these debts. They wouldn't have had the income because they'd have lost the war. Right. And Napoleon would have taken all their colonies in, in America, and Bob's your uncle, they wouldn't have been able to pay. So Rothschild's original gamble was Napoleon's going to win, so he bought gold and sold bonds. Right. But he also understood better than anybody else that at times of war, information is king. And he who has the information first is the guy who wins. Yeah. So rather than wait for the post office, which sent fellas on horses from Waterloo it, outside yeah, Brussels, yeah. to Ostend, then on a boat across from Ostend on the to mail Dover, and then on another horse from Dover to London, he got bleeding carrier pigeons. He was a pigeon fancier. <laughs> Good right? man. He had a whole, he was a great, I love that expression, a pigeon fancier. So Rothschild had a whole team of pigeons, right? Right. And of course, pigeons fly faster than horses. Right, yeah. And they, they fly do. over the sea. Yeah. Right? So you don't have to wait for any boats, right? And when it became apparent to Rothschild's man in Brussels that Napoleon was going to be defeated, what they then knew was the price of gold in London would fall and the price of government bonds would rise. So right. they reversed their trade. So they put this little piece of information into the leg of the feckin' pigeon. Pigeon goes off to London, flies. Woo! That's my pigeon noise, by the way. It's I don't very think good. you've ever met it. Very good. If I close my eyes there now, I would have been, I would have been in an aviary. <laughs> the woo pigeon arrives in Rothschild's gaff in London. And Rothschild unfurls a little message, and the message says, Napoleon has lost, sell gold, buy bonds, which is what Rothschild did, cornered the market in bonds, bought them all, and there is the legend of the Rothschild family. That's how they became rich. Wow. Wow. That's actually it. That's how right. they became, that's how they gave a clean pair of heels to the bearings and the warbirds. Yeah, on the back and, of a pigeon. On the back of a pigeon. <laughs> So next time you see a fella with a bunch of pigeons in the back, a little pigeon fancier, understand that that was the technology that changed the world in wow, the Napoleonic brilliant, era. Brilliant. So to come back to Russia, I'm not yeah. sure that Putin will be sending pigeons, right? <laughs> but the war, the ebb and flow of the war from here mm. will have profound speculative impacts on financial markets. But the longer term idea is that the West needs to asphyxiate the Russian economy and hit Putin hardest in the oligarchs' pockets in order for us to, not to win this war, this is not going to change the course of the war, mm. but what it's going to do is it's going to say to would-be oligarchs that the financial muscle of the West, we might not have the willingness to fight, but we can make you poor. 
And the long-term consequences of that are instability in your own country. Mm. And the long-term consequence of that is your inability to think over a couple of years about economic stability, which all dictators need to stay in power. Okay, we're looking at the oil sanctions and the oil and gas and all that kind of stuff. Tell us, what's the role of the Russian central bank in all of this? Right, so the, the big change, the thing that has really taken the Russians by surprise has been the freezing of the Russian central bank's assets abroad. Okay? Yeah. Now, this is huge because basically the central bank controls the Russian money supply, right? And the money supply is made up of what they call DCE, domestic credit expansion, and foreign reserves. So it's two things, right? Now, the foreign reserves is basically your war chest. The reason you need foreign reserves is that if the rest of the world is selling rubles, or if Russian people are selling rubles, okay, Mm. and you want to maintain the value of the rubles, you then have to sell dollars and buy back those rubles to drive up the ruble price. Right. But if you don't have... Create the demand for rubles. Yeah, but if you don't have the dollars, you can't offset the fall. Right now, what has happened is, and this is what all countries that operate their own exchange, yeah. right? Mm. We, I did it for years in in, in Ireland. You know, well, I, I didn't do it; I was just observing the thing, right? But you need a certain amount of foreign exchange reserves. Now, what has happened is the Russians will have been part of the BIS system, the Bank of International Settlements, so they will have had and they'd have kept the reserves with foreign banks, right? So right, that's the idea. Right. So it's a bit like having your own. Bank account, yeah, right? Yeah. You might have a bank account in AIB and you might, you know, whatever, right? So they kept most of their liquid assets on what they call swap arrangements with other central banks. Right. So if they needed sterling, they would just simply ring the Bank of England and say, wire us over sterling because we want to maintain the ruble and we want to sell a bit of sterling. Right. And the Bank of England would say, fine. But now they've been cut off. So the ruble is a one-way bet. Now, why this is really important is Russians have a collective memory of hyperinflation from the 1990s. Yeah. Okay. And Putin's promise, in a way, we've spoken about this before, was to bring financial and political stability to Russia. And the major litmus test of financial stability is your currency. And if your currency is falling... It really means that the government has lost control of, for the average dude, Yeah, you know, when they're actually out on the street in Moscow, right? It's the currency is the litmus test of whether you're credible or not. And if the currency is falling, it has a profound psychological effect on the people, not least because their savings are being devalued in dollar terms, but also, you know, Mickey Mouse countries have Mickey Mouse currencies. Mm. And part of the whole Russian vibe is we're not a Mickey Mouse country. You yeah. know, we're, we're not like Brazil. We're not like, you know, Argentina, the countries that yeah. always yeah, make yeah. mistakes. We're a hard country. But you can see now that there's, you know, there's queues at banks. Yeah. trying to People trying to change their rubles to dollars or whatever. Yeah, because the one thing is how you stop a bank run is you stop the source of the anxiety. And normally, the source of the anxiety in in a bank run is there's no money in the bank. So how you stop that is you put money into it, which is what the Fed did in 2008, right? Yeah. Now, Russians know that they don't have dollars in the banking system. So ultimately, what's going to happen is 
the queues of banks will probably get worse, right? But number two, Russian banks owe so much money to Western lenders. All those assets, all those loans will go to zero. They will never be paid. I remember in on the seventh will be delighted. On the seventeenth of August, nineteen ninety-eight, John, I got a phone call from my boss, and we were involved in the Russian market to say that Russia had defaulted, devalued, and put a moratorium on all foreign debt. And those assets that had been trading at a hundred percent went to five percent, so five cents in the dollars. Wow. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Wow, that's incredible. Big Irish airline leasing companies that have leased out over 100 passenger airlines to Russia. Mm. I don't know how they're going to get paid. I don't or know get how, their planes back. I don't know how they're going to get the planes back either. Yeah. So what we have to realize is that the West, the EU, is at war with Russia. We mightn't be saying it. It mightn't be a technical war. Right? You know, yeah. But we are in a war with Russia at the moment. Well, as the, the Russians said yesterday, actually, that economic wars usually end up in proper, full-on military wars. Yeah, so we're in an economic war with them. So that means that all Russian assets, in dollar terms or in euro terms, will go to close to zero. Yeah. And there'll be a mass default of all Russian creditors. And we will start again when this war is over. That's how it works. Yeah. So we'll be back after the break. We're talking about oil, but specifically how different countries use their windfall and how Russia has used it lamentably. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. But do you remember Martin Sambu? Uh, Yesterday, on, the other day, yeah, yeah. On, on Tuesday there. What I thought was really interesting, him being Norwegian mm-hmm. and talking about how Norway have used their, their oil and the sovereign wealth fund and all the rest. In contrast to? In contrast to, but, you know, Norway are spreading the wealth, spreading the happiness yeah. for the good of, of everybody in Norway. Whereas Russia and the oligarchs, it's all about me, 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 me. Well, I've always thought, could you imagine if Ireland had struck oil? In 1969, with Fianna Fáil in power, 
Could you imagine the feckin' oligarchs? We'd all be wearing Charvet shirts. We'd all be wearing Charvet shirts. No, but you, that would, this country would have turned into a complete oligarchy. Yeah, definitely, probably, probably. Definitely. And it would have been whoever was closest to Charlie, whoever was closest to the, the corruption. Because remember, the corruption here was endemic in the yeah. 70s and 80s. So I've always thought, you know, we you know, everyone says, wouldn't it be amazing if we found oil? I was like, I hear, no. <laughs> but you know, the interesting thing about the oil thing, it's not just Russia. Like, Mrs. Thatcher, Britain's oil, where are all those revenues gone? Yeah. They blew them on tax cuts in the 80s. They yeah. cut taxes for everybody in the 80s. They have no wealth fund. They had a broadly similar oil fund to the Norwegians, and it's now gone. Yeah. If you think about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, but I think that's a crucial idea, that the way in which you spend your national windfalls tells you a huge amount about the nature of society. And if you look at the people who tend to cause wars, there is a dramatic, dramatic correlation between resource-rich countries and trouble. This is the funniest thing. So most people would think, wouldn't it be great to have a gas find or an oil find mm -hmm. or this, that and the other. But in actual fact, the evidence is the opposite because it creates it's things called Dutch disease, actually, in the economy. Okay. All right. So Dutch disease, the Dutch found gas in the late 1950s, and they thought this is going to be fine in the, in the North Sea, mm. right? And the idea was that Dutch had therefore predicted we're going to be self-sufficient in heating, and this is going to give us a huge, huge competitive advantage. But what they found was the economy actually started to slow down. And the reason it did is that the gas sector in Holland was so attractive to everybody workers, oligarchs, investors, that it sucked all the workers and money out of the rest of the Dutch economy into the gas sector. Right. It pushed up prices and pushed up wages in the gas sector, but they bled into the normal sector. And they found very quickly that their competitive sector in Holland couldn't compete with the rest of the world anymore because the cost had been driven up dramatically by the gas sector. Right. So it's called Dutch disease. And what the Norwegians were thinking is, we cannot do that. So if we allow all the revenues of our oil and gas to come into the economy, we'll have lots of fancy restaurants, lots of posh cars, yeah. but we'll have inflation in the local economy and that will destroy the competitiveness of agriculture and all these other things. I so wonder, they're always thinking miles know, ahead. Just, just as, as you're saying that, this Dutch disease, could that be applied to somewhere like Ireland and our newfound wealth is tech industry? Of course. And the tech, it's exactly the same idea. Yeah. So the tech is the shiny new thing. And the shiny new thing attracts in all the resources and all the graduates and all the money and all those fancy apartments in town. And it sucks all the energy out of the rest of the economy. Yeah. And also, also, it changes people's perceptions about value. So, oh, you're only working in a normal job. You're, I'm a tech bro. Yeah. I'm a yeah, tech, yeah. you know, like I'm working in Google or whatever. Yeah, so it's the same idea that basically the economies are, we come back to our idea, are incredibly sensitive ecosystems. And if you overwhelmingly favor one sector, you then diminish another sector. Mm. And many people in Ireland will say, because we so favor the multinational tech companies, we give them a carte blanche to do whatever they want and the rest of the economy suffers. But what the, in economic theories, this comes back to Dutch disease, right? Mm. So if you take, for example, a country like Nigeria, endemically corrupt, the corruption starts in the oil industry. You take the Arab countries, 
These yeah. these yeah. these are these aren't these are family businesses. They're not even countries, right? <laughs> you know, Saudi Arabia is a family business, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. And then, of course, like in Putin, what the family business does, it creates almost a mafia class that have all the money. Mm. If you look at the PRI in Mexico, so the PRI, the most successful democratic-ish party since the Second World War in terms of getting re-elected themselves and Fianna Fáil, right? <laughs> they have, it's swear to God, swear to God. And of course what they have is they have enormous amounts of oil revenue in Mexico. So what you see is that with the exception of Canada, Norway, and Australia, these are three countries that have managed their resource bounty properly. Yeah. But it can be as much of a curse. And of course, just to conclude, if you create an oligarchy based on who owns the nation's natural resources, and if you allow a tiny amount of people to own that resource, and if you allow the president to give out the licenses to that tiny amount of people so that they can continue owning that resource, mm. you get Putin. Yeah. And it's not that the oligarchs control Putin or Putin controls the oligarchs. They control each other. And ultimately, the way in which this will probably end is that the oligarchs will turn against Putin. Because if Western sanctions work against the oligarchs, they'll sit down and say, do we need this guy? Do we need Ukraine? Do we need Crimea? No. So that will be the theatre of discussion for the next few months. Let's hope so. Thank you very much. Now, John and I, I think the gig is sold out yes. on Saturday, John. Yes, it is. So we're going to have the crack this weekend. I hope you do. If we see you at the Olympia, all the better. If not, have fun, and we'll talk to you on Tuesday. <laughs>